Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. <laughs> Mark 9 began with the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 1 through 13. And then it continued with a restoration of a demon-possessed boy in verses 14 through 32. And then Jesus predicted his betrayal, his death, his resurrection in verses 30 through 32. And the chapter then has Jesus addressing three subjects. Humility. And then harmony. And then hell. It makes perfect sense to me that we will talk about hell Today, you know what today is? It's April 15th. April 15th, on this day in 1865, Abraham Lincoln died as a result of a gunshot wound on April 14th. It was on this date, April 15th, that the Titanic sank. It was on this day in 1954 that it became established that your taxes would be due forever. So, yes, it seems perfectly, perfectly appropriate that we're going to talk about. Yes. You know, our culture is willing to embrace certain forms of humility and harmony. But hell is still a very difficult subject. What subject is more politically and perhaps theologically incorrect? It was Colonel Robert Ingersoll, who was a very famous atheist in the 19th century, who railed against the topic of hell. He, he said, quote, the idea of hell was born of revenge and brutality on one side and cowardice on the other. I have no respect for any human being who believes in it. I dislike the doctrine. I hate it. I despise it. I defy this doctrine, he said. He said, this doctrine of hell is infamous beyond all power to express, unquote. 
It was the philosopher Bertrand Russell who rejected not only the Christian religion, but Jesus himself because of this passage of scripture. Because of this passage, Bertrand Russell said that he believed that Jesus was wrong. Russell at least had the intellectual consistency to understand that Jesus believed in a place called hell and that it was a place of everlasting punishment. Russell wrote, quote, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who's really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment, unquote. Now, I want you to think of the hubris of that statement. Do you understand what Russell's saying? Russell was saying that Jesus was a good man, an exceptional man, except for one fatal flaw in his character. He chose to believe in hell. And therefore, he couldn't possibly be as moral as Bertrand Russell. And I need you to understand something. For every single person, without exception who rejects Jesus' teaching on hell, they do so understanding that they place themselves in a position of moral superiority to Jesus. In a Barna survey in 2003, 79% of Americans agreed with the statement, every person has a soul and will live forever, either in God's presence or in the absence of God. 71% said that they didn't believe in hell. Two dominant views emerged about hell. Four out of ten adults believe that hell is a state of eternal separation from God's presence. That 39%. Others said it's an actual place of torment and suffering where the soul of people go after they die. Only 13% said that. Other respondents said, I'm not sure. Or they said that they didn't believe in an afterlife. That's 16%. Most Americans do not accept expect to experience hell firsthand exactly one half of one percent expect to go to hell when they die nearly two-thirds of americans that's 64 percent believe that they'll go to heaven one in 20 adults that's five percent claim that they'll come back in some other form a being, uh, you know, as a plant or an animal. Five, that's 5%. Some said that they believe that they will just simply cease to exist. Half of American theologians surveyed believe that hell should be characterized as a place absent of God and not necessarily a place of real torment or painful suffering. Dr. Doug Groteis, who's a friend and who's also been a guest in this pulpit, said that he believed that Christians were ashamed of hell and that, that, that many see it as, quote, a blemish to be covered up by the cosmetic of divine love, unquote. Again, the atheist apologist Robert Ingers- Ingersoll delivered this hot lecture on the absurdity of hell and assured his audience that every respected intellectual had dismissed the idea of hell. And a drunk approached him and said, 
Bob, I liked your lecture. I liked what you had to say about hell. But Bob, I want you to be sure about it. Because I'm dependent on you. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Do you think it's safe to allow atheists and agnostics and unbelievers to shape our attitudes about the afterlife? Do you think it makes sense to go to the agnostic, go to the atheist, go to the unbeliever to provide you comfort about what's going to happen? May I be so bold and so blunt as to ask you a question? Is there someone more qualified than you and me to tell us what exactly happens when people accept the gospel and when people reject the gospel? Look at Jesus' words again. It begins with a stumbling block. Look at verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me... To stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What does that mean? What does it mean whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble? Now, I want you to remember the context. The emphasis has been on humility and harmony. And now the subject of offense has come up. In the context of discipleship, Jesus makes it clear that the servant must be aware of his or her words and deeds. And Jesus has spoken about kindness. And he's spoken about reward. And he's spoken about even the smallest kindness. Remember verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ assuredly to you he will by no means lose his reward here's what Jesus is saying if the smallest kindness will not go unrewarded does it make sense to you that the smallest or offense or even the greatest offense would go unnoticed and unpunished. Certainly it does. And you see, this is hell's hold on people's heart. It is the idea that nobody is really looking and nobody really cares. But the Bible says exactly the opposite, that no matter what you think, someone is looking and someone cares. The word translated stumble or offend is the Greek word scandalizo. You know that word. A word has come into our own vocabulary from it. It's the word scandal. It means to trip up. It can also mean to trip over. In this context, I'm going to suggest to you that it minimum means to trip up. It minimum means to trip over. But it probably means to lead a person to sin. To provoke them or promote sin. The little ones aren't identified, but Jesus identifies them in part. These are people who believe in me. That's what Jesus says. And by the way, throughout the New Testament, believers are often referred to as little children. 
They're often referred to as little ones. John refers to them as my beloved, little children, little ones. The idea is, is also little loved ones, agapitas. A little one is anyone who is a new believer in the faith, but it's also any person who has a childlike faith and a childlike sensitivity to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who Jesus claims to be. So how serious, how serious is it to lead someone astray? How serious is it to solicit another person's rebellion and disobedience? And so Jesus gives a severe warning for those who lead people to sin and teach people to sin. The practice starts off again simple enough. No one will know. No one will care. Nothing will happen. Hey, look. It's okay. No one's going to get hurt. But children watch, don't they? Children listen, don't they? Does a children have does a child have to be actively taught wickedness and rebellion or if they just simply watch what you say and if they simply watch what you do will they copy it You see it provokes a different kind of question Not only does your example matter but what you believe about sin matters How bad is it What does it do? What are the consequences? You might know the theological answers. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. You know the theology in Romans where it says that that there's none righteous, no, not one, that everyone has sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus speaks of the danger of causing others to sin. And the image that Jesus provides is of a great millstone, the kind that was moved by a donkey or cattle in order to grind grain. Remember, there were two kinds of millstones that people would use one that you would use in the kitchen in order to beat flour like a mortal mortar and a pestle and another larger one that a donkey or a cow would move around large amounts of grain and it's the second one that he's using the contrast that he gives is dramatic and shocking and forgive me for saying the obvious but drowning is an unpleasant form of death and attached to the large millstone you know what that means it doesn't allow the body to float to the surface anytime soon. So what are we to take of the metaphor that Jesus uses? In the Jewish culture, when a person was convicted of a capital crime, they were punished by stoning. In the Roman culture, they would sometimes use Drowning is a form of capital punishment. And the Jews often saw drowning as a symbol of utter destruction and annihilation of being to the very depths. And guess what? The Jews feared it and the Romans reserved it for only the people who committed the most heinous forms of crimes. I'm going to ask you a hard question. And if you don't want to be honest with yourself, at least be honest with the text. Do you suppose Jesus issuing this warning was meant to generate fear? 
If you said no, then I think you're missing the point. If you hear the words of Jesus and something doesn't tremble inside of you, if something doesn't shake just a little bit, the sin of leading a person astray, the sin of leading others to sin is terrible and the offender is warned and you are missing the point if you conclude that this doesn't mean that Jesus is trying to make me afraid whatever else we may conclude Jesus gives the believer a warning that we are to battle against the carnal desires and the natural appetites if we indulge our desire to sin if we indulge our desire to lead others to sin it spells ruin. If we control our desire to sin by living our lives in Christ and for Christ, by living our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, we minimize the risk of walking in the flesh. And so how are Christians to live unoffending lives? How are we to live in spiritual victory? How are we to live in humility and harmony and peace? And Jesus reaches down deep inside of your soul and says, I need to warn you about something. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to solicit others to sin. And I want you to note the tone and the tension. Sin is terrible, but soliciting others to sin is even worse. Jesus seems to be saying that the goal of not offending is worth any personal sacrifice. In Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 1, in a parallel passage, Jesus says, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. I want you to take heed to yourselves. It was Jesus saying, I need to warn you. If your brother sins against you, he says, rebuke him. And if he... Repents, forgive him. And the word rebuke means to cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. And then Jesus radically says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. We might think of our hand as the instrument that we use to work. It is the instrument that we use to accomplish deeds. We might think of our foot as the instrument that we use to walk in a specific direction. We might think of our eye as the instrument that we use to see the things that we crave and to see the things that we want. And I want you to pause for just a moment and think about what you can touch and the direction that you can go and the things that you can see. Because there's a voice inside of your heart saying, I can't touch hell and I can't walk in that direction and I can't see it with my own eyes but I want you to understand part of what Jesus is saying in this passage what does the hand what does the eye what does the foot have in common they all can cause us to sin and what does sin do 
it not only disqualifies us from heaven, but it qualifies us for hell. And so what are the causes of sin? The Bible teaches that sin is any want of conforming to the character of God, whether by act or by disposition or by state. Sin is sin because it is different from what God is. He is eternal and he is holy and he is righteous and he is pure. But we sometimes forget just how awful sin really is. But one clue, the tiniest little clue is given to us of the magnitude and wickedness of sin in the death of Jesus. If you want to know how horrible something is and how terrible it is, all you need to do is ask yourself what has to happen in order for this to go away. And now we see Jesus. The Bible teaches that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Personal sin includes everything that we do that fails to conform to the character of God. The Bible says we're sinners by nature because of Adam and Eve and by choice. And the remedy for sin is redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what Jesus says in verse 44, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 66. The book of Isaiah is the same book that he opens when he begins his ministry. When he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The same Jesus who uses the book of Isaiah. To announce the nature of his ministry now uses the book of Isaiah to describe something we'd really rather not talk about. Does this passage teach that true believers in Jesus as Lord and Savior can find themselves in hell? Taken by itself, the casual reader might come to that conclusion. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, wrote, The wicked have a never-dying worm, and the godly a never-fading crown. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that have been committed. A person might profess Jesus and a person might have a profess a spiritual experience. They might appear to have all the outward credentials of a Bible believing born again person, but they're not saved. They've never been changed. They've never been born again. If a person consistently and persistently indulges the flesh, if a person sacrifices the future for the present indulgences, if a person consistently and persistently rejects God and rejects Jesus and rejects the Bible and rejects discipleship and refuses to to accept the invitation to examine their own heart to see whether or not they're in the faith, then they have every reason to be skeptical about their spiritual condition we are called to judge the believer who refuses to reject sin and walk in humility and harmony we have no power whatsoever to the unbeliever 
And we have no power over the make-believer. The Lord Jesus repeatedly speaks of hell as a place of fire, as a place that's eternal, as a place that's everlasting, as a place where the torment, it never stops. And the statement should be sobering. Let me put this in perspective for you. There are 1,850 verses in the New Testament that records the words of Jesus. 1,850 verses in the New Testament that record the words of Jesus. Would it come as a shock to you that 13% of those words of Jesus speak of judgment and of hell? No one speaks of hell more than Jesus. If you take the sum and the substance of every other writer in the New Testament, all of them combined don't equate to what Jesus has to say. So what do you say to the person who says, I accept Jesus as a great man and a good moral teacher, but I refuse to accept his teachings on hell. Let me just be blunt. If Jesus is wrong about hell. Then you have every reason to be suspicious that he was right about heaven. If Jesus was wrong about hell, it means that he, number one, he was mistaken and therefore he's not qualified to be the savior. Jesus doesn't really know what happens on the other side of death. And number two, that he was deceptive, which disqualifies him for the son of God, because a nice person doesn't intentionally mislead people. If Jesus is wrong about hell, then maybe sin isn't as bad as the Bible suggests and he becomes guilty. Guilty himself of what he's accusing the religious leaders of doing. In this single passage, we discover hell is a place where you go, where you are conscious, where you have a body. It is an appropriate place with memory and torment and an unquenchable fire. So what would our outlook be? If one morning we woke up and we really believe the words of Jesus. He talks about offending with the feet. Look at verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. By the way, does he mean this literally? I'm going to suggest to you now. It's hyperbole. He's exaggerating a point in order to make a point. Otherwise, everyone at church would have no hands, no feet, and we would be walking around blind. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it isn't in the it it isn't the condition of the hand and it isn't the condition of the foot. It isn't even the condition of the eye. It's the condition of the heart. In order for sin to go away, you're going to have to take and excise your heart in order to make sin go away. In his classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards chose as his text Deuteronomy chapter 32, 35, which reads, Vengeance is mine and recompense their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand 
and the things to come hasten upon them. He says it repeatedly. Their foot shall slip in due time. Because everyone's foot is based on something substantive. A solid rock, Jesus. Or on the slippery stone of human imagination. Jonathan Edwards says, The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. And the pit has opened its mouth under them. O sinner, Consider the fearful danger you are in, unquote. Listen to that. Sinner, consider the danger you are in. Do you dare? Do you dare? Do you dare ask the question, am I in danger? Is my heart and is my soul in a precarious place? And he talks about offending with the feet and he talks about offending with the eye. Look at verse 47. And, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell Fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you walk away from the text and imagine even for a moment that this isn't a radical declaration to turn from sin and turn from offense and the consequences of it, then you're missing the point. For the person who says... Hell isn't real and the fire isn't real and the worm and the fire are metaphors. You should have enough sense to say describing what? If the metaphor is this dark, if the metaphor is this bleak, if the metaphor generates this kind of fear, if the metaphor generates this kind of trouble, then what are we to think of the text? Let's humor the unbeliever for a moment. Let's say, okay, hell isn't a place. Then what is it? A frame of mind? A theological construct? What is it really? Jesus uses the term Gehenna 11 times in the New Testament to describe the eternal destiny for those who reject Jesus. Yes, it is linked to the Valley of Hinnom, which was located on the south side of Jerusalem. Yes, it was a trash dump where people burned their trash. Yes, it was the place where the wicked king Ahaz and Manasseh and some Israelites offered their children as burnt offerings to the false god Molech. Yes, the the place was foul. Yes, the stench was awful. Yes, the refuse was repugnant. So what does it mean? 
Jesus uses the term Hades when he relates the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, verses 19 through 26. Again, he uses the term Hades in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, when he describes the occupants who stand before God because their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The record of all those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they are cast into the fire. The word is Gehenna. The temporary torment Jesus illustrates in Luke 16, 19 becomes the place of eternal torment in the book of Revelation. In our culture and our language, we usually use the term hell to speak of the place of either temporal or eternal punishment for the unrighteous dead. And when Jesus told his disciples in John 14, too, I go to prepare a place for you. The word that Jesus uses is the Greek verb or noun topos. We get the word topical. Or topographic map. It means a place. And so for the person who looks you in the eye and says, ha, 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 you think heaven is a place? Ha, 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 Oh, you think hell is a place? Ha, 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 ha. And they laugh at you. Because they think that laughing at you and mocking you will make the text go away. Jesus describes heaven as a place, not just a state of mind. In the same way that Jesus warns that hell is an actual destination rather than a state of mind. He describes the fate of the unrighteous in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. These are the words of Jesus. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same word that he uses to describe eternal punishment is the same word that he uses to describe eternal life. And so if eternal punishment means temporary punishment, if it means temporal punishment, then logically it stands to reason that eternal life could mean temporal life or or probationary life. Does it make sense to you that the righteous would go to an actual location in heaven, but the unrighteous would go into a state of mind, a theological construct? Do people suffer in hell? Once again, I'll repeat the words of Jesus, who's repeating the words of Isaiah, chapter 66, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. The place is described as a place of darkness, of loneliness, of sorrow. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus affirms that it's better to enter life with the loss of everything that we hold dear and precious than to go to this place. Jesus describes hell using two metaphors, one in its extremity, the gnawing worm, one in its consuming fire. Jesus describes hell in terms of extremity. And duration, 
a worm that never dies, a fire that is never quenched. Not once. Not twice. But three times. Can you imagine Jesus saying to you, that's number one. And then Jesus saying to you, that's number two. And Jesus saying to you, that's number three. Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes, quote, Scripture clearly speaks of hell as a physical place, a fiery torment, and warns us we should fear, unquote. Others aren't so sure. Rob Bell isn't so sure. Other people aren't so sure. Certain Bible teachers speak of hell as a reality, but they're reluctant to describe the nature of it or the duration of it. And look what it says in verse 49. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Do you understand what is happening? Jesus, again, is quoting Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Salt was an emblem of the covenant between um, God and his people. He says in verse 50, salt is good. And some of you might be thinking, is he speaking here medically? Well, oddly enough, I think the answer is yes. I did a little research. Truth. In 1996, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a meta-analysis of 56 clinical trials done since 1980 in people with normal blood pressure and found that extreme salt reduction had little effect on lowering blood pressure. In another recent study, investigators found that the less salt people ate, the more likely they were to die of heart disease. Here's a, and then they post another article about a recent study which shows that eating less salt increases triglycerides and other hormones in the blood, which increases blood pressure and the risk of heart attack. And then in a review of another meta-analysis in 2011, an article in Scientific American discussing the analysis said, quote, This week, a meta-analysis of seven studies involving 6,250 subjects in the American Journal of Hypertension found no strong evidence that cutting salt intake reduces the risk for heart attack, strokes, or death in people with normal or high blood pressure. You know, it's the saddest thing about what I just told to you. For some of you, it's the most important thing that you'll learn from this message, and you'll remember. You'll walk away and you'll go, did you hear what Gino said? Salt is good for you. Honey, buy those pretzels. In our culture and in our society, we understand that even though there are benefits to salt, when Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, Christians are the salt of the earth, 
when he says here in verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season? Have salt in yourselves. What do you think that that means? What do you think it means? Have salt in yourself. I'm going to suggest to you it apparently means be a power for God in the world. Exert a beneficial, preserving, flavoring influence for the glory of God, for the character of Christ. Remember what salt does. Salt preserves. It retards the decay process. But make no mistake about it, it also stings. Just like in The Princess Bride, you remember? When, when, when he says, he's not dead, he's only mostly dead. Don't listen to him. And he goes, shut up. Don't tell me to shut up. I'm your wife. (laughs) And remember, he goes, why don't you just cut me with a paper cut and pour salt in it? Because the salt stings. So when he says, what are you saying? Have salt in yourselves. What does it mean to be salted? I'm going to suggest to you that he's talking about in the character that you have, the preservative character that you have, the the, the compelling character that you have, the, the, the seasoned character that you have. Often in the Bible, fire is an instrument of cleansing, and it's also an instrument of purification. But salt is also an instrument of cleansing, and it's an instrument of purification. It may broadly mean that what this means is that you are to live your life in such a way that the powerful presence of God and the preserving presence of the Holy Spirit is made manifest in the way that you actually live your life. Salt is often used in the Bible as a substance that preserves and purifies, counteracts corruption and seasons. By the way, in the Middle East, in ancient times, it was a pledge of loyalty and friendship and faithfulness to a promise. Everyone, everyone could mean everyone. It could refer to believers and unbelievers. If that's what it means, it could mean that even the believer experiences discipline and chastening and purification. Or we preserve ourselves in part from corruption and corrupting influences by practicing self-discipline and self-renunciation. In other words, because you are a preservative, because you are salty, because you are seasoned, you begin to understand something that self that self-renunciation and self-discipline is the exciting antidote to offense. Haven't you ever heard that voice whisper inside of you? Don't say anything. Keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. And you go, my mom said, if I can't say something nice, The last two verses, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. I'm going to suggest to you that it seems to indicate the believer's life is a sacrifice to God. 
Our sacrificial life is salted with fire that is mixed with heavy doses of self-judgment and self-renunciation. William MacDonald writes, quote, it is salted with salt that is offered with a pledge, unalterable devotedness. If the believer goes back on his vows or her vows or fails to deal drastically with sinful desires, then his life will be savorless and worthless and pointless. Therefore, he should eradicate anything from his life that would interfere with this divinely appointed mission and he should maintain peaceful relations with other believers, unquote. So how do you heed Christ's warning? The worm is crushed by a repentant heart. The worm is crushed when you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior. The fire is extinguished with the salt of your tears as you begin to mourn and grieve over your offensiveness and your sinfulness and your wickedness. What if I told you something that might shock you? We're all going to end up in the fire. The temporary fire of being a living sacrifice to Jesus in this life. Or the eternal fire. of Punishment away from Jesus. In the temporary fire of personal purification. You grow. In grace. In the knowledge of the truth. In Christ's likeness. Or in the eternal fire. Of personal punishment. For very real sin. C.S. Lewis wrote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God. Thy will be done. And those to whom God says. Thy will be done. When you insist on having your way, and when you insist that your pleasure, your pain, your promotion, your privileges are what matter most, when you say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what you say. God will have some closing words for you. Okay. Have it your way. And I don't think he means at Burger King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. A living sacrifice. Purged and purified in the crucible of suffering, deprivation, renunciation. Lord, from time to time, you tell us that if no good deed will go unrewarded and no bad deed will go unpunished, how could anyone ever stand before you? 
And Lord, we know the answer that apart from Jesus, there's no hope apart from his life and apart from his death and apart from his resurrection. And that we see for the first time how traumatizing sin really is. When we begin to understand what it cost Jesus on the cross of Calvary. No wonder we sing, thank you, Lord. No wonder we praise you. No wonder we glorify you. No wonder we remind you, Lord, that we're so grateful for your sacrifice, for your love and for your mercy. Lord, we pray that we would take to heart the words that we've read. We pray, Lord, That if it only means half of what it seems to mean, that maybe we need to rethink what the future could be like for those who don't know you, who don't love you, who have never embraced you as Lord and Savior. And Heavenly Father, I know that it is not the threat of hell that wins people. It's the possibility of heaven. It's the possibility that you could love someone like me and forgive someone like me. Give hope to someone like me. And so, Lord, I pray for that person right now who needs hope and who needs love and the possibility that love and forgiveness is available. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, I pray that their own repentance of their sin would crush the worm. I pray that the tears that fall from their eyes would provide the salt necessary to extinguish the flames that await the unrepentant and the unconcerned. Lord, whisper in our ear the truth about what happens when you die. In Jesus' name, amen.